It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I am so happy that you made it to class this morning. So as you know, we've been talking to a lot of mamas on a number of episodes because there are a lot of mamas appearing on the ballot in 2022. And so today I thought, you know what, let me call up Luba um, and see what's going on with Vote Mama. And all of the candidates we have featured thus far have been supported by Vote Mama. And I wanted to check in with Luba, particularly to talk about this motherhood survey that Vote Mama is engaged in. Luba, thanks so much for taking time. Thank you for having me. It's great to, great to chat again. <laughs> yes. So I've talked a bit over the last couple of weeks about the motherhood survey that Vote Mama is engaged in. Can you give us a little bit of information or an update on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've done the research at the federal level. And if you look at all of our federal candidates, only 7% are moms with children 18 or younger. We don't have that data. No one has that data at the state level. So we put together this survey. It's going out to all women state legislators across the country. And there are specific sections for those who are moms, for those who are caregivers, and for those who are women without children to get an understanding of what it's like to be a woman, to be a mom, to run for these state seats and to serve what it's like once they're actually in the legislature. What resources do they have? What barriers did they face? It will be the first nationwide demographic data set of all women state legislators. And it's it's really a deep dive look into the experience because we have so few women, so few moms with young kids in these seats that our policies are failing women and families across the country. And we want to change that. You know, we've been working to pass campaign funds for childcare across the country, and we want to know what is the next barrier that we are going to start to tackle. And this survey will help us help us figure out what what moms are dealing with across the country. So you mentioned that in talking about passing legislation all across the country, similar to what happened with you and being able to use campaign funds for childcare. This is significant for moms who are considering running for office, but families in general, right? To be able to use uh, campaign funds for support and whether that be for children or if you're a primary caregiver, as you know, for a number of years, I was caregiver for my grandmother, right? So talk a bit about the successes and the opportunities on that Front. Yeah, absolutely. So we, during my campaign, I got the Federal Election Commission to approve the use of campaign funds for child care. That works for all federal candidates. Unfortunately, we actually have to now go state by state to get this passed and approved for state and local candidates. Currently, there are 26 states now that have approved the use of campaign funds for child care for local candidates. 15 have passed legislation, 10 have approved this through ethics rulings, and one, Virginia, passed this through an attorney general ruling. We have introduced legislation in 14 states this year. We're working with legislators across the country, both Democrats and Republicans. And it's, it's, there's so much momentum. And what's good in most of these bills is exactly as you said, it's not just for child care, but it's really for dependent care. Almost all of these bills include dependent care because there are so many people who are really in that sandwich generation who are taking care of their parents or their grandparents and their children. And it really makes a huge difference in, in, 
in changing the political landscape and normalizing what it looks like to run with caregiving responsibilities. Um, right now in Washington, it's actually off to the governor to sign. And we have legislation we introduced. Um, you know, legislation has been passed across the country, but legislation this year in Hawaii and Iowa and Kentucky, Massachusetts, Ohio, Georgia, Nebraska, and it continues on. And it it really changes who has a chance to run. If you look at the federal level, it's, you know, the majority of funds have been used by women. More than half of the funds have been used by candidates of color. It goes a long way in breaking down barriers so that working parents can step up and run for office. You know, Luba, long in the beginning of my political career, in thinking about who was running for office or the profile of the person running for office, just thinking about myself. My dream when I was younger, I was going to be the first fashion designer slash U.S. senator, right? But my trajectory was I needed to get wealthy and be the fashion designer first in order to run, right? So I even, you know, had internalized that, oh, you have to be wealthy in order to run for Senate, in order to run for Congress, because how else would you be able to take care of all that, you know, take care of your family, be able to get your name out there? You know, it is encouraging to be part of the generation that is changing that and that we are able to pass legislation that would welcome and break open the doors for more women, more people of color, more historically marginalized people to be able to run. So you don't have to find the wealthy route <laughs> in order to run for office. And so thank you so very much for charting that course. Now, if someone is listening and they are in the state legislature and they want to fill out this survey, what do they do? They can go to our website at votemamafoundation.org. And there is a section for the State of Motherhood survey where you can click and we will send you the uh, the survey right to you. If you are a woman state legislature, we have already sent it out to all Western states, all Northeast states and all states in the South. Midwestern states will be getting the survey next week. So you should have already gotten it. Best bet is to go to your email and actually check your email. You can log in. There's a password and just use your legislative email or you can go to our website and ask for us to send it to you again. Um, but we... We are working really hard to make sure that we get the most responses because we want to make sure their voices are heard. This is really the first time that anybody is studying what that experience is like. Things you don't even think about. You know, campaign funds for childcare is this thing that we've been talking about for a while, but you look at the distance to the Capitol. You know, I was talking to Josie Raymond, who's a state rep in Kentucky, and she was telling me that anybody, anybody who has young children who serve in the state, who serves in the state legislature, they all live within an hour and a half of the Capitol. Anybody outside of that, you know, hour and a half drive, they don't have small kids. They couldn't even think of running and having that commute. You look at things like, is there childcare? Is there a women's caucus? Is there a changing table in the bathroom? Do they have paid family leave? You know, are there lactation rooms? Things you don't even think about. Is there remote voting? You know, we were talking to Rep Salmon um, from Arizona and up until, you know, three months ago, they had the ability to vote remotely and to have citizens testify you know, at legislative hearings remotely, and they've removed that now. And she has a newborn daughter and doesn't want to risk her daughter's life. In Arizona right now, COVID is the second leading cause of pediatric deaths. And she doesn't want to go into the Capitol right now, but they've removed the ability to vote. We're actually putting a petition out about that, which I will send to you. Mm -hmm. uh, please sign and share because we are trying to get uh, Arizona state uh, leaders to change that to make sure that we can actually make it easy for people to be a great legislator and a great parent at the same time. 
I love that. And I love the activation. And, you know, if you are listening and you're just a constituent and maybe want to reach out to your state legislative person and ask them, have they completed their Vote Mama's Motherhood survey? That's a great action you can take as well. And to learn more about Vote Mama, you can go to votemama.org and see all of the wonderful work they're doing, including supporting amazing candidates like this next one. My name is Sarah Godlewski, and I'm currently the state treasurer of Wisconsin, and I am running to be the next U.S. senator from Wisconsin. And my campaign is really focused on opportunity and getting things done in Washington. I mean, too often we have seen that things like childcare or reproductive freedom are topics that we just can't get done. They're almost political footballs. And I think enough is enough. And it's one of the reasons why I'm running is that our current U.S. Senator here from Ron Johnson uh, in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, just hasn't been doing much. I mean, he, he would rather talk about conspiracy theories, like how you should gargle mystery as a way to cure COVID rather than product protecting Roe v. Wade and making sure that people have a choice in their reproductive freedom or you know, he spent July 4th in Russia rather than making sure that we could get the infrastructure package or extend the child tax credit. And so for me, it's where Ron Johnson, he's not here for Wisconsin families. And I would argue he's quite frankly not here for the country. And we deserve somebody better. And as a fifth generation Wisconsinite and uh, the daughter of two public school teachers, I've always been taught when you see something wrong, you've got to stand up and do something. And that's exactly what I why I got in this race. It's to continue to make a difference for working families in my state. Now, so running as a mom with your children certainly has its challenges. Talk to us a bit about that experience uh, running as a candidate, not only for Congress, but just, you know, in the current position you serve in, and how do you do that balance? Well, I think for me, as far as what it's like to be a young mom, both as a statewide elected office holder, also as a candidate for U.S. Senate, is I think we need to normalize this as much as possible. Um, for me, I could be, if I was elected, I would be the youngest mom in the U.S. Senate. And I think that's been part of the problem is that we don't have a lot of working moms at the U.S. Senate table, and I want to change that. Part of my kind of role as a mom to a two-year-old um, has been looking at policies and how are these policies that impact moms and working families being implemented in the U.S. Senate. And when I was state treasurer, I led the CARES Act package. That was the first package that was passed to help families during COVID. And when I saw that Delta Airlines got more money than childcare, I'm like, this is part of the problem. This is why we need more moms at the U.S. Senate table, because I will tell you, if we had all you know, 100 seats, for example, were working moms, things like childcare and Kate Family League would be top priorities because in Wisconsin, we saw so many women drop out of the workplace during COVID, not because they wanted to, but because somebody had to take care of their children or they had to take care of their parents. And because they didn't have policies like access to policies like Kate Family League, they were left behind. Um, 
And so me, this has been, I think, a real eye-opening experience because if we're not at the table, I found we're on the menu. And we need to be fighting for the policies that impact working moms, moms in general, and, and families, um, because we're all in this together. Yeah, you mentioned things like child care. I, I can imagine pay equity is another issue. What are some of the other issues that you're looking to, you know, to, to head to Washington and bust open the doors and start yelling about at the top of your line? Well, in addition to economic security, as far as the critical issue, and to your point, Joy, as we talk about paid family leave, affordable childcare, pay equity. I mean, the other thing that is front and center is climate change. I mean, I think about my two-year-old son, and I was always taught that you have to leave the world better than how you got it. And right now we have seen that uh, erratic weather just right here in Wisconsin has cost our state over $20 billion. The UN recently released a report that said if we don't take any sort of action on climate change between the years of 2030 and 2050, we're going to see 250,000 people that are going to be dying more a year because of whether it's extreme weather or just torrential rains, like you name it, heat. And so to me, we just, we've got to start doing something about it. And so whether it is working on lowering our emissions, um, here in Wisconsin, 80% of our energy, for example, comes from brown energy instead of green energy to even the water that we drink. Families right now, particularly black and brown families in our state are drinking from lead pipes. And that is horrific. I mean, kids in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, can have higher lead levels than in Flint, Michigan. And so climate to me has to be like front and center because it's about the next generation. And if we don't start addressing these issues now, what kind of world will our kids inherit from us? And I think that's absolutely essential. One last question for you. There are an amazing amount of women running in this election cycle, which we all applaud. What advice do you have for the mom who may be running, not only the many women who are running for Congress at the Senate, but like you are, you know, about to do their first time running for a local office on the state or local level. What advice do you have for that mom? You can do it <laughs> and you should do it. Uh, we know sometimes one of the biggest impediments for moms running for any sort of office is that they need to be asked five to seven times. So let me be one of your, you know, five, seven times. Like I'm asking you to run as a mom as because we know that policies that impact us and our diverse experiences are critical to the overall policy making. Um, and it's something that I don't think happens enough. I mean, when you look at Congress right now, I can tell you here in Wisconsin, just even at our legis in our local legislature, I think our uh, what our state legislature is twenty eight percent, maybe now thirty percent women. I mean, we're fifty one on this percent of the population, and so it goes back to this original theme: if we're not at the table, we're on the menu. And so I just think it's incredibly important because your experience matter, whether it's talking about um, how like pay equity to uh, different things like healthcare for your kids. And as many families are struggling with even the prescription drugs that they are trying to, uh, I was talking recently with a mom and the price that she pays for insulin for her child um, 
to making sure that you have access to childcare. And so I think all of these issues are front and center and, and making sure that um, families can, we can set them up for success and make sure we're setting working women up for success. And so your voice matters. And so you should do that. So I'm asking you to get into the race and, and to do it. We all know that it is, this is not an easy thing to do, especially for being a working mom. Um, I would here quite frankly, can I do this? Uh, but I mean, the results in Washington are not are not policies that are, you know, for people like us. And so we've got to work on it. We'll be back with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let Welcome back you to Sunday know. Civics. I'm your civics teacher and host, Eljoy Williams. And joining me at the front of the class, we haven't actually had a conversation about this topic for some time, and that is on reproductive justice. You know, we've had conversations previously that talked about the ban that happened in Texas. We'll get an update on that. We'll just talk about what's on the horizon and what we need to do to take action in protecting women's reproductive choice and, well, everyone's reproductive choice in general. So to have that conversation, I'm bringing to the front of the class Kelly Robinson, who currently serves as the executive director of Planned Parenthood Action Fund, and she's the vice president of advocacy and organizing at Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Sister got two jobs. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully it has two checks. Kelly, (laughs) welcome to the front of the class. Thanks for having me. All right. Do I need to call? Do I need to call somebody? Make sure you got two checks. Like what's what's happening? Do what you got to do. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying you got two titles. Anyway, thank you so much for making time. I know we have a lot to talk about. Folks want to hear what has been the impact of the law that was passed in Texas. And we have a number of things that, you know, going into another midterm election cycle, but then even just looking down the road for the next five to 10 years, what we should prioritize and, you know, keep in our mind both on the state level and on the federal level as it pertains to reproductive justice. But I want to start where we start with every guest by you sharing the story of your first civic action. Oh, I love this question. And thank you so much for this conversation in general. Um, Well, my first civic action. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, Now, when I was growing up, my family, we were a church going folk. We were Catholic, but not quite the way you often think about Catholics. My aunt, she would describe us as black Catholics. I don't know if that's an official denomination, but that's what she said that we were. And to her, that meant that we were the double clapping. You fall out in the aisle. If you didn't burn 500 calories and your wig didn't shift a little bit during praise and worship, you weren't praising hard enough. That's the type of Catholics that we were. Now, (laughs) I say that because I remember that Most of the pivotal lessons I learned about what it means to be an organizer, an activist, and be engaged civically, I learned sitting in those pews. 
I remember when I was really little, um, our pastor, he had this one sermon that he would say that for whatever reason, it resonated with me. And he would say it like once a year, um, usually during this time of year, as we got into the Lenten time, he would say that there's two reasons that folks come to this space. For him, you know, he was talking about the church, but for me now, as an adult, as an, as an organizer, it resonates with me when I think about why people come to movement building work, why people try to build change together. Um, he said that there's two reasons that folks come. The first is for prosperity. So to like thrive in your circumstance, to do even better, you know, to pray on your lottery ticket. Um, but the other reason that folks come, he would say, is for salvation, for deliverance from harm, for, for deliverance from loss, just to survive. And when I think about my work, it falls in that bucket. It's always been about our shared salvation. And we'll talk more about the issues later, but that's kind of what it comes to. And I remember sitting in those pews, my mom, every week, she would write her check to do her tithing and she'd give me a dollar. It was always a dollar. It wasn't a $5 or $10. It was a single dollar bill that I could put into that um, donation basket when it came around. And I just thought like, man, that's what being engaged civically is all about. That's what being part of a community is all about, giving of what you have in a meaningful way so that you're contributing to be a part of the whole, to try to make everything better. And it wasn't just that, like we would, you know, do our giving, but then around voting time, it was souls to the polls. We were going out to walk, to cast our votes. um, And some of us would have responsibilities. Like when I was a little bit, I would have to walk with some of our elders in the church to help to make sure that they could also cast their ballots. And I just love that feeling that, you know, they talked about the beloved community as like a concept, right? Like Dr. King would always talk about, but the actions match the words. And whenever I think about civic engagement, I think I'm a little bit of a, of a romantic like that, that it, it is really our ability and, and um, duty as citizens to serve in whatever ways we can, giving of your time, give of your talents, give of your treasures, but in any way um, to give. And I really did learn that um, sitting up in those, uh, those pews for as many hours as it took on any given Sunday. <laughs> okay, so first of all, that's Catholic <laughs> because that's how like a uh, Baptistical or a Pentecostal church that I grew up in. We 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 call our thing Baptistical because like our family who founded the church come from a Baptist tradition, but then when they became adults, they moved into Pentecostal churches here in Brooklyn, and so like our church is like Baptistical, and I ain't never heard of Catholics shouting and all of the kind of stuff. So that that's new to me. Y'all y'all sure y'all Catholic. That's what I love about people. We will remix it. All right. We will take what you got and make it work for us. (laughs) And Dr. Carr would say, Africana Carr on Twitter, he would say, we just bringing it all back to the African tradition anyway. So it's like, I don't know what your denomination called. What do you, all I know is I'm bringing it back to the God I know who, you know, (laughs) we're going to do some hooting and hollering up in here. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? So I love that story and I love the connection of your faith into it because it's part of, you know, it's part of the reason why the show is Sunday Civics for me. And, you know, faith has really driven my civic participation and my political work as well. So I found that to be really, really great and interesting story. And I do feel a little bit ashamed because I give my daughter just a dollar for the, uh, (laughs) never a five dollar either. Maybe I need to up her, up her. Of her ties, if she was given a dollar back then, <laughs> or is that just the universal kid tides amount is a dollar? 
Maybe I have to it. look that up. It's got to be in the good book somewhere. I'm right. sure. Like it has to be the universal. <laughs> here's your dollar for your ties until you are of age. Um, right. When you get to be 12, it shifts. <laughs> right. And then you can you can do so on your own. But let's get to what we're here to talk about today. Let's start first with Texas because it's been a couple of months since the ban on abortion after approximately six weeks of pregnancy took effect in Texas. And You know, I I want to hear from Planned Parenthood perspective. I know you released some data and some information about this law and its effects on communities. I want to give you an opportunity to let us know, for those of us who don't live in the area, who don't live in Texas, what has been the experience for people in that state as they are seeking services? Oh, thank you so much for for making space for this conversation. It's it's been devastating, right? And I know that many folks have heard and seen what's going on in Texas, and then you're seeing your states do similar things, trying to pan, um, pass different types of abortion bans under all kinds of names. But at the end of the day, a ban is a ban is a ban. They are trying to take away our power and ability to make decisions that are right for ourselves about our health care, including our abortion access. So. Um, you said it had been a couple months. Actually, March 1st marked six months since Texas's um, SB8 went into effect. Again, extreme six-week abortion ban that isn't even enforced by the state. It gives the right to individual citizens, to citizen vigilantes, to actually go out um, and enforce this six-week abortion ban. It's outlandish. And the impact that it's had on the people of Texas is extreme. It's only been six months, and we've seen the effects already. Um there's been an 800% increase in abortion patients from in the surrounding states around Texas because Texans have to go somewhere else to get care. Because you also got to remember, at six weeks, most people do not know that they are pregnant. Um, so, I mean, it just is really a devastating situation where, you know, you're seeing abortion effectively banned in the state of Texas because the, the ban is so extreme that nearly no one can get access in the state itself. Folks have to travel hundreds of miles. They've got to get childcare. They've got to take time off work. This on top of already having to make this decision that's right for themselves and their families. Um, So I think that, you know, what we're experiencing here is not just issues that impact Texas, but also impacting the people in these surrounding states that now are finding an increased burden for themselves even to access care. This is a really dangerous scenario. It's not anything that we've ever seen before. The courts are not providing the backstop that we need. Um, This is really one of those moments that it's going to be a reckoning when it comes to abortion access in our country. You know, I looked at that stat in terms of 800%, right? And those are people who, like you mentioned, are have to leave their state, have to make arrangements in order to go to surrounding states. And as you mentioned that, some of those surrounding states, what is that, like Oklahoma? Yeah, um, New Mexico. New Mexico. Kansas, Colorado, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Some folks are even, you know, I just read a story the other day about somebody that went all the way down to Mississippi. Mm. Um, yeah. And at at the same time, this is part of a coordinated strategy, right, of trying to continue to put pressure and bring lawsuits and charges through the court system that would ultimately result in a review or relitigating Roe v. Wade. Yep. 
That is a strategy. And they have not been um, shy about saying that that's what it is, especially over the last few years. And really, when you think about it, it's been like a 40-year strategy that they've been trying to stack conservatives into the courts of this country all the way up and through the Supreme Court. And with the presidency of Donald Trump and, you know, getting... Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, as, we're, as well as Judge Kavanaugh there, it definitively swayed um, the weight of the court to being super anti-abortion and very conservative leaning. I think the challenge now is, you know, we used to always say, okay, states are going to do these things. These things are not in the will of the people. I have to say that too, right? Like, you know, there's no state in this country where banning abortion is popular. Almost 80% of the country supports Roe v. Wade and abortion access. These politicians at the state level are not acting in the interest of their constituents. They're on a full-on power grab, right? Because that is their goal, to gut and undermine um, Roe v. Wade. But now that the you know courts are essentially a political institution, um, we can't count on them as a backstop. And states know that. So they have been pushing hundreds hundreds just this year of abortion, anti-abortion restrictions through their state legislatures to do just what you said, get challenges at the Supreme Court that will eventually undermine and likely gut Roe v. Wade. Mm, mm, mm. We'll be back with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your civics teacher and host, Eljoy Williams. So how is Planned Parenthood attacking or defending the rights of those seeking abortion services in this area, in Texas? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the work goes right back to the state level. It is so important that people are paying attention right now to what your state legislatures are actually doing. Texas was the first to pass this kind of citizen vigilante type bill, the SB8, um, that really did put enforcement in the hands of private citizens and at such an extreme level at six weeks. Um, Now we're seeing copycats starting to roll out. Idaho this week uh, might be looking at a similar type bill. So we've got to be paying attention. We have to be making our voices heard. And especially for people in Texas, I think we're also paying close attention to what Oklahoma is doing, who's also looking at an abortion ban um, and making sure that we're working with states that have um, pro-sexual and reproductive health majorities in their state legislatures to get even more expansive and comprehensive in their services. Because at the end of the day, these laws they don't stop people from needing healthcare. They're not going to stop people from needing abortion access. What it does is put a greater burden on women, on folks of color, on young folks to get the care that they need because they have to travel to these other states. So our goal is to really kind of look at this in a 50-state landscape and make sure that we are fighting um, wherever we can, where folks are trying to push bad bills to restrict access to care, and also support working with supportive governors um, and supportive state legislatures to expand rights as much as possible to catch these folks that will just need services. They will need access to care. Now, what are the other, besides abortion access, there are a number of other issues as it pertains to reproductive justice or 
and, and gender and other things that are being targeted in state legislatures. Can you talk a bit about Planned Parenthood's role in the fight on those efforts? Oh, yeah. Um, and I got to give, you know, all honor and praise to my reproductive justice colleagues. There are so many folks, especially Black women, folks of color who have been grinding at this for decades. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we started this conversation off saying this, that, you know, when you think about access to abortion care, it's not just about what happens when you walk through a health center doors. It's about all the barriers that people that are in place before people even get there, right? Um, thinking about stuff like paid time off, like paid family leave, um, like the things that help to prevent pregnancy in the first place, right? Access to sex education, um, access to birth control. Um, so we work on a range of these issues because they're really important to make sure that people actually have the power and resources to make decisions that are best for themselves um, and for their families. And especially right now, I just had a whole baby <laughs> and I can tell you, you need every bit of these resources. Whenever they were debating uh, the Build Back Better Act and trying to think about whether or not folks really needed family leave, let me tell you, if you don't have that, you don't have the power and resources to make really the decisions that are best for you and your family. Um, so we are fighting hard on really all fronts to make sure that uh, people have the resources that they need, especially now, especially in this environment. Yeah. And, you know, we did a whole conversation with our beloved sisters and Sister Song, which I know you've served with before, and others talking about reproductive justice through the lens of Black women, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, abortion access, while is a component of reproductive justice, it is not the sole component. And about the varying issues that you mentioned, as well as things like, you know, cis, ovarian cysts and ovarian cancer and screenings and fibroids, which is also being taken up at the federal level in Congress by the Committee on Black Women and Girls, right? So there are a whole host of reproductive issues that I think, you know, what's interesting is, you know, there is sometimes the critique of, you know, reproductive justice is all about abortion. Everybody just want to have an abortion. <laughs> but at the same time, it's just like, well, they keep coming for it. So we got to defend it all the goddamn time, yeah. you know, like in order for people to have access and that it's a regular part of, of healthcare. So it's always this balance right, of that other folks are dealing with other reproductive issues that we need to highlight and need to focus on, but at the same time, you know, needing to protect and defend this medical procedure and the right for women to have access to this procedure as well. Yeah, you know, and it's just outrageous, especially as a Black woman. Um, they do so much to criminalize us and our bodies, right? I remember mm -hmm. my, one of my first... Um, campaigns I did in the reproductive justice movement with Sister Song um, was a Trust Black Women campaign in 2010. I don't know if you remember this, but they had these billboards up all across the country saying that the most dangerous place in the country for yes. Black health is a Black woman's womb. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Yes. Wow. I definitely remember that. And I remember the conversations about it. And you know, it, it's one of those things in terms of people, we're even talking about digital literacy and people where they get their source of news and facts and information and taking things like that, that, you know, can be skewed in terms of numbers to, 
you know, highlight this fact or that they want to scare people straight into being against abortion, but then not provide some of the other services that you mentioned, exactly, um, which is childcare, which is a livable wage, which is a safe environment, affordable housing, all of those things that are necessary and critical. critical, you know, to supporting a community in its future and a family, right? And, you know, those things, people are stoking the fire of people's religious identity, fear, and all of that in terms of addressing something that majority of people do not want to happen in this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're also trying to draw divisions between our communities, right? Mm -hmm. Using this messaging, Um, which is why I think it's so important to, like you said earlier, call it like it is. This, they are not trying to support the Black community through all this messaging and through all this work. What they're trying to do is gut and undermine abortion and really take away the power of our communities. Because the other thing I think about is these same folks are attacking abortion rights. They are the same ones that are attacking trans kids, right? They are the same ones who won't vote for voting rights or who are attacking and dismantling voting rights in the states. And Um, also the same ones that have the view of talking about public safety, of investing in police officers that are harmful to black children as well. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't be at the one hand, like protecting life and all this other kind of stuff. And then, you know, a little black boy playing with his toy gun in the park, you're like, like, well, he was menacing, mm. <laughs> you know, mm. like that, like it don't, it don't add up. Your value is a math. Yeah. Right. The math isn't mathing. At the end of the day, your values have to be able to stand up on every issue. And it's very clear that yours do not. Right. Um, right. But, you know, I want you to uh, go a little further in terms of talking about the rights and access to reproductive justice, even for those in the trans community, right? Because we don't think about something I'm trying to change my language as well, right? When we talk about abortion access for women or people, I should say birthing people. Birthing people. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. Because even right, being able to change language in that way. But there is a different level of reproductive services for people who identify or who are trans that need, you know, services as well. And if you are attacking their very identity, yeah. right, the ability and the resources for them to also be able to get proper health care and proper reproductive health care is also a challenge. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much bias within our our health um, services in this country. I mean, of course, bias exists on the whole, but when it comes down to health and you see kind of the numbers at the end of the day, whether you're looking at Black maternal health and the the outcomes that are different from the general population, by different, I mean much worse and, and really stark and scary, um, to the way that we look at what's actually available for our trans siblings, right? Um, we have to just do a better job. And I think some of it does start with changing our language. Um, and it also starts by really having an inner, it also begins with really having an intersectional movement, right? It's like you said, our values are around making sure everyone has access to care. That's got to include that everyone can express their identities in a way that is whole um, and represents who they actually are in this world. Um, so I think that we're finding a lot of um, opportunity to really work across issue lines right now. Um in a really powerful way to make sure that we're building this movement that's kind of more inclusive than it's ever been before. Um, It's critical because it's not only about passing the laws, it's also about when the laws are in place, 
what does access truly look like and mean um, so that everyone can get the type of care that they deserve. Um, and at Planned Parenthood, especially at the health centers, that, that is really at the forefront. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, when we've had a conversation before here on the show about Planned Parenthood, about reproductive justice, you know, we've talked about for particularly college students and others, because I mm-hmm. think Probably Planned Parenthood was strategic in putting a lot of their centers near colleges. Um, but just the the thought process of like for a number of people, like, you know, they got their first reproductive health checkup or conversation outside of their parents at a Planned Parenthood center and reiterating to people that, you know, Planned Parenthood health centers themselves, which is a separate entity for the, from the action fund, but still, you know, they provide much more services than just abortion services, right? And so I remember a couple of years, the attack, the consistent attack about defunding Planned Parenthood, which was, was that the first defund movement <laughs> was defunding Planned Parenthood? I feel I feel like that's the first like modern conversation about about defunding something. Uh, you just had a whole revelation right there. Right, I was just like, wait, that that's the first time I remember some about defunding something. Talk a bit about Planned Parenthood, the constant attacks on Planned Parenthood as an institution in communities, and how people can help support. Planned Parenthood and its continued advocacy. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, there's so many services that Planned Parenthoods offer across the country, particularly our health centers. Um, my wife, she was a, a sex educator, actually. And a lot of folks don't know that we are one of, we are the largest sex sexual health educator in the country um, because such a big part of our work is making sure that people have the information they need about their bodies and information itself is power. Um, we do peer-to-peer sexual health education as a big component of the work. Um, But in addition to that, at Planned Parenthood Health Centers, they provide birth control, they provide well-woman exams, they do referrals. They are really a resource for families. You know, when I started at Planned Parenthood, I was an organizer in Iowa, and we were a real community resource. People would come in for health services, but they'd also come in if they had a question about anything. If they didn't know exactly what government service um, department to go to, they would come in and ask us because they know that we were a resource to help them find the information they need. And essentially, that's what Planned Parenthood health centers are all about. Um, we also do, at many of the Planned Parenthood health centers, they also provide um, gender-affirming hormones. Horm- excuse me, gender affirming hormone therapy um, to support our trans family um, and just so much more. It's so expansive, the services that they offer, because it's all about making sure that people have access and information to make the decisions that are best for them. So looking over the next couple of months, you know, there's what needs to be done in the immediate term, right? But then there's also, you mentioned at the top that there was a 40-year strategy in terms of dismantling Roe v. Wade. Thinking five to 10 years from now, what are things that we need to keep at the forefront of our mind and prepare ourselves to not only be on the defense about, but more importantly, to be on the offense about as it pertains to reproductive justice? Oh, that is such a good question. You know, in the immediate, I think now in the next like one to two years, we got to focus on the states. You need to know who your governor is, have their phone number in your pocket, um, know the information about your state legislatures, because so many of the decisions about the health care that you have access to, the abortion care that you have access to in your state will be determined by your state governments. We don't have a federal backstop right now. We don't have the courts as a backstop. 
the action is happening at the states and that's where we need to be focused, expanding rights everywhere we can and fighting back bad bills when they are showing up. And let me tell you, the will of the people will prevail. If we make our voices heard, we can do this. Now, at the same time, we got to be thinking more transformatively, right? Um, RBG said this, she, you know, RBG rest in power. She said this, though, that the privacy foundation of Roe v. Wade was important, but it was never enough, right? Roe has always been the floor and not the ceiling for what we need to truly protect access to abortion care in this country. So if I think in the 10-year frame, even the 20-year frame, we have to be thinking more broadly about what it means to have true protections on this issue and look at different ways to do that. I think we're going to have to be creative to figure out what those solutions are in the next couple of years, but that's the kind of thing that we'll actually be a part of. We'll ask supporters to be a part of visioning that with us so that we can actually construct something that's new and really more transformative than Roe v. Wade was ever able to be based on the legal constructs it was created under. Um, but that's where we are. We have to fight at the state level. And now we have to create a new vision that's even bolder and really more expansive, broader in terms of um, gender protections, um, in terms of fighting for real access um, and real protections across the country in the longer term. And I think also for me, one of the things I'm looking at as well is, you know, with insurance companies and coverage on how we can expand access to other services, whether they be for ovarian cancers, yes. whether it be for IVF or other strategies in terms of families that are looking to expand their families, right? But if you look at the access that people have in terms of health insurance, and this is also from like personal experience, like you got to have like a whole part-time job fighting healthcare insurance, even if you have quote good insurance mm -hmm. in order to have coverage for some of these things. And I'll give you an example. You can have coverage for something also. And then the drug treatments or the other services that are that you need in order to complete the item are also cost prohibitive. Mm -hmm. I remember being on, you know, and I've talked a lot on the show about going through multiple cycles of IVF and the insurance companies are like, yeah, we approve IVF. And then you go, oh, for the drugs? Yeah, that'll be $700 a pop or $1,500 a pop. It was like, we don't cover that though. I was like, but wait, <laughs> Look, how am I supposed to, right? Like, and that is yeah. included in reproductive wellness, right? That is included in terms of you having comprehensive healthcare yeah. in order to be able to not only, yes, you can have this procedure, but you know, the, the drug access is going to send you to <laughs> like send you to bankruptcy, right? Yeah. So all of those things, we're not just thinking about as you mentioned, there is the short-term actions that need to take place, but then also thinking long-term of how do we build up structures to be able to support reproductive justice in its entirety. Absolutely. That's the work, right? That's the work of figuring out how to eliminate these barriers. And there are real things that we can do. We can challenge the insurance companies, like you said. We can start pushing for paid leave. Shoot, I've even seen some great advocacy happening within companies when those employee resource groups get together and advocate to expand their company's policies. So I think we also have to like think beyond the bounds of just what the courts can do and just what legislation can do. There's so much you can do in your city council to push for sex education. There's so much you can do at your workplace to advocate for better policies for you and for other staff folks there. There are a lot of actions that we can take right now, but we also just got to be ready that, look, it is going to be the fight of our lifetimes, right? Um, for us to really get to a place where we have true, to try to get to the vision of what reproductive justice calls us to be. 
Right. So last final comment, and this is a rapid fire. We, we listen to the conversation that Kelly and I have had and you're like, great, Kelly, this sounds awesome. What are the two things I need to be doing like right now as it pertains to reproductive justice in my state or on the federal level? Ooh, I got two big ones. One, um, figure out what's going on in your state legislature and get involved. That's probably going to look like having your governor's information. That's going to look like having your state um, representatives information. But we have got to be active in state legislative sessions right now. There are hundreds of bills that are moving that will restrict access to abortion, and access to the broad range of reproductive services. We got to get involved there. And two, tell your story. We can make this experience feel so isolating, this experience of healthcare access. And that's what the opposition wants. They want us to feel like we're alone in this. We are not. So many people, one, of, one in five people goes to a Planned Parenthood health center in their lifetime, right? Like so many folks are experiencing and need access to the issue that we're talking about right now. One of the biggest things that we can do, tell our stories and connect with people to eliminate that isolation and feel that sense of power together. That's huge. Um, to give us the momentum we need to really push through the next um, long while that's going to take for us to get all the way to freedom. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly, so very much for coming to join us. Hopefully you'll, you know, be back in the future to talk about more what Planned Parenthood is doing on the ground and all across the country. Thanks for making it to class this morning. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one.